Thank you, John Mark. It's really good to be here. It really does feel like a second home here at Bridgetown. And um, one of the things that always warms my heart is in the contemporary world, you know that you sort of have a spiritual relationship with another church when you look at your podcast on iTunes and that other church is the most recommended church alongside yours. Um, but So it's good to be here. And I'm talking tonight about something which is almost a game changer in how you view not just your faith, but the world. Jesus in Mark's gospel has this healing where a man who is blind comes to him. And Jesus does something strange. He puts saliva on his fingers and puts it into the man's eye sockets and asks him if he's been healed. And the man responds and says, I can see, but I see people, but they look like trees. Some of us are touched by Jesus, but the way that we're looking at the world is unclear. We're not wearing our glasses or we have the wrong prescription. Jesus then, again, does the same thing. And then the man sees clearly. So my prayer is that tonight is bringing into focus an essential element that's really central to this series, central not just this series as a teaching series, but central to what it is to be a follower of Jesus, and particularly in a city like Portland. So we're going to open the Scripture, jump right into it. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. This is a famous passage on spiritual warfare. In here, and I'm not going to read this bit, but we have the classic description of the armor of God. Spiritual armor. I don't want to get into that. I actually want to get to the first couple of verses which set that up. So we're going to begin at 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Paul's speaking to a church in Ephesus, multicultural environment, dominant political, military, and economic power of Rome, Greece with soft power to influence people's minds, all kinds of different beliefs swirling around, Egyptian religions, Judaism still strong and present. Paul's speaking to a church in that context outlines that the life of faith is one in which there is struggle, that a stand must be taken. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Absolutely prophetic. Prophetic then, prophetic now. In a world which is returning to the tribal, this group versus that group, Who's in, who's out? Who's to blame? Who's innocent? Which looks across at ideas and sees not necessarily ideas, but sees human faces to blame. Where instantly we know who our enemies are. The people different to us. And this is happening across the world. This verse which says, hey, the enemy is not humans. It's not flesh and blood, which is easy to blame because they're right there. You can reach out to either side of you and touch 
flesh and blood. Don't do that, that's just a metaphor. So humans are there, so they're easy to blame, but Paul's saying there's a different dimension going on here. What he's saying is, there's this foreground, and foreground is the human ground. You can see people, in this room there is sociological human dynamics occurring. We see that, we get that. Our world's all about that, the physical, the external, the evident, the material. As believers, we also know there's this background that behind that, we believe in this God, this God who comes into the world, who makes the world, who sends His Son. But where we go next is a really interesting place because it actually talks about a middle ground, a middle ground that's essential to understanding what's going on. So struggle's not against flesh and blood. Who is it against? Against the rulers, against the authorities. Okay, so it's the leaders. It's the kings, queens, presidents, prime ministers, chancellors. It's the EU, the UN. No. Not those kind of rulers, not human. This is not against flesh and blood. But it's against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And powers we hear and we try and understand that. But what this is talking about is this continuation, if you were here last week, where John Mike interviewed Tim Mackey, and they spoke about this concept in the Old Testament where God has a kind of heavenly council. He is a king in heaven, and around every king or queen there is a court, and power is delegated. A king can't do it all, so they delegate power. And it talks about the Elohim, this heavenly council, and Tim explained these passages where God delegates power to this heavenly council to then create these conditions for life on earth. And so Paul's using a Greek word, stoikia here, which doesn't just mean power, it's referring to that intermediary space of spiritual entities. In some ways you could call this a cosmic bureaucracy, that God uses to create conditions on earth for us to flourish. But what's interesting is the way that this is pitted at, these, these spiritual bureaucracy is actually now engaged in a spiritual battle against us. That their role wants to create conditions on earth for human life to not be overtaken by evil has now changed and they're in battle against us. To understand this a bit more, let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. And it uses a little metaphor here, and the metaphor it uses, I'll read it and then I'll explain it, so if you don't understand straight away, that's fine, we're going to get there. Verse 1, 4 verse 1, Galatians 4 verse 1. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. What he's saying here is, just as sometimes when someone passes away and they want to give money to children, particularly if it's a lot of money, they often stipulate that you have to come a certain age, maybe 21, and then you'll get your parents' estate. The idea behind this is you don't want to give a million dollars to a 12-year-old boy. Not a good idea. 
I don't know if you can like spend a million dollars on Fortnite, um, <laughs> but I'm sure there would be 12-year-old boys who would somehow do that. So this sense of that until the age when someone needs to then receive their inheritance, they're given a particular kind of servant or slave. And this particular kind of servant or slave is like a combination in the ancient world of a bodyguard, a nanny, and a school bus driver. So they would take you to school, they would watch out for you, make sure you don't get any trouble, and they were this guardian, this servant who was a guardian. So it goes on, the heir, verse two, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So you're gonna be looked after by this guardian until you're mature enough to not need them. And what this is saying is, this helps us understand this intermediate space. This intermediate space and these entities acted in the world as guardians and trustees to keep the world from falling into absolute disorder and evil. There is nothing worse than living in absolute chaos. There is nothing worse than living in a culture where there is no authority at all. This week, listening to the BBC, I heard a report from Mogadishu in Somalia. Mogadishu is close to being a failed state, a city in a failed state. Where in the morning there's so many bombings, so much corruption that when people say goodbye to their father going off to work or their kids going off to school, there's a good chance they might not see them again. It was one year ago this week that a terrorist bomb in a car went into Mogadishu and went off early near a market next to a gasoline tanker. 600 people dead. The perpetrators of this attack who normally claim their attacks were so ashamed by the death toll of children. And people at the market, they didn't claim it. So what this is saying is, it's better to live under someone who is a slightly or even corrupt oppressor than to live with absolutely no control. I heard another fantastic set of interviews which helped me understand why there were certain places in Syria and Iraq which let in ISIS. They interviewed people and said, how, how did you live under ISIS? What was that like? And they said, it was actually better than before because at least they had power. We hated them. They did terrible things. But at least there was power. They took the drug dealers off the street. They protected us from the Shia paramilitaries that were gonna come and kill us. We hate ISIS, but it's better than nothing. And I listened to that and thought, oh my goodness. What must it be like where your preferred form of government is ISIS compared to the alternatives? So people live under these elementary forces and they provide humans with a sense of meaning. Religion has been this for humanity. Religion in different forms provides a sense of ethics or morality that's not always right. Tradition. In some of the scripture, it aligns this idea of the elemental forces with the various rules and Torah and laws of Judaism. In other places, it actually relies to other forms of religion. 
And when we look at the world today, what's really interesting is we talk about certain sectors of culture almost as if they were personalized. We talk about the media. Now, if every person in the media instantly left the media and were replaced by other people, would it change? Probably not. Washington still has a character that's still there, even though generations pass and whole new people move into that city and that government bureaucracy. Hollywood still has a character, and you read of Hollywood in the 1920s, and it looks very similar to now, yet all those people are dead. It's not flesh and blood. There's actually things above these institutions. So we talk about media, government, politics, and we don't realize that behind these things, there are these intermediate elementary forces. It changes. Now, it doesn't say humans are just automatons being possessed and they can't control. Yes, no, humans participate with these forces, but we only see partially the picture when we think it's just the humans. So what this actually says is really interesting because you can kill your enemy, but you can't kill the elemental forces. You can wipe out all the people currently in government in that city, but if the elemental forces are still in control, they'll just be replaced. And this explains something which is really hard for us to understand, particularly as we're created in this mentality that we're very rational beings and we understand the world. And if we think our way through places and things, we'll get there. Henrik Bergdorf, who was a Dutch theologian who wrote on the powers, said that he saw this in 1937 when he went to Germany to study theology. Germany, the place of Goethe, the place of all these great minds, something came up and almost out of the ground, and something that was irrational overtook people. And it's not like all of a sudden people mentally decide, oh, you know, let's become national socialists now, and I think we now need to become Nazis. Something irrational takes over at different times in human history. There are these things which are almost deeper beneath the surface there, waiting to erupt. And so, the elemental forces are something which humans were under slavery to, and it was used as a guardian to get us to a point. But verse 4, But when the set time had come, when the child was then able to be an adult and get their inheritance, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, under the elemental forces, so that we might receive adoption in sonship. Here is the guardian, the nanny bodyguard, bus driver, taking, and okay, they're protecting them, but they're gruff, and it's a heavy yoke. And then that person, in Jesus' death upon the cross, is handed across, not to a guardian, not to someone with a heavy yoke, but someone who adopts them into sonship. Doesn't just do this as a job, like a security guard, but this is actually their child. So, that we might receive adoption to his sonship, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. The language here, Abba, is Daddy. 
This is no longer a guardian protecting you from the disorder of the world. This is an intimate, tender, parental relationship. We're so used to language around parenthood. We're at a time in history where we have this idealized view of parenthood that's very much about an emotional relationship, which is, which is what it is. But through a lot of times in history, parents just didn't have that relationship with kids. Parents was all about training them in this particular way, getting them ready to take over the business or whatever. But this language here is this adoption into a different kind of relationship, where no longer are you under the control of the elemental forces of the guardian. You're now Jesus' child. You also are not just Jesus' child, but you're also an heir. You get the inheritance. So not only are you invited into this new, liberating, freeing, loving relationship, you are invited then to take the inheritance. What is the inheritance? The inheritance is eternal life. It's partnering with God in His kingdom in the world that is now going out and will end when heaven and earth are reunited and God rules in the world. You're invited back into that. Everything that was destined for Adam that he rejected in the garden is given to you again to be a steward with God in the world. So not only do you get this new relationship, you get this inheritance. This is incredible. But in verse 8, and this is so interesting, in what we call post-Christian contexts, like your city and mine, verse 8, this incredible thing's being given, inheritance, a father-child relationship. However, formally, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. So firstly, the problem that's gone wrong with these elemental forces that God would delegate power to and tasks in the world is now, just as Adam and Eve were tempted and seduced by the serpent's promise to be like gods, now the elemental forces, which are not gods, are acting like gods. They're stepping beyond their bounds. And this is why people fall for the idolatry of ideology. Have you noticed religion, so politics has become like religion lately? Where all of a sudden people talk it in the tenor and language, and some of the stuff I look at, and I think, I remember like really sort of full-on, crazy, overly religious Christians used to talk about that, and now I'm hearing it from very secular people. Where literally the religious fervor comes through politics, and that is happening across the world at this moment. That's being slave to the elemental forces. That's that irrational religious thing that even comes up in people who think they're secular and rational. Verse 9, but now that you are no, no God, or rather known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them over again? What Paul is saying to the church in Galatia is, you have Jesus you don't have to walk with the guardian anymore. That was a heavy yoke. Now you get to walk with Jesus and you get the inheritance. But there's something in you, this temptation, to look at the freedom that Jesus gives and to go back to the elemental forces. To step back into not a Christianity that is vital and comes from a father-child relationship with Jesus, but comes through a sense of duty doing the right thing, pharisaicalism, a cultural Christianity, which is actually about an enslavement. It's got a left-wing version, it's got a right-wing version, they all end up in the same place. But the elemental forces want to pit left and right against each other, and it's confusing everyone. 
And it's a complete farce when you look at the level above at what's going on in the spiritual. And all it wants to do is trick us that our enemies are flesh and blood, but there's something bigger going on in the spiritual realm. So now you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. This is post-Christianity in the first century. The Christians can take what's given to them, but then reject it and turn back to something from which they once were enslaved. That sometimes it's better the devil you know, it feels like as a human being. And the church in Galatia was choosing that devil's bargain. When we turn to, this will be my last passage on this, but if we turn to Colossians chapter 2, we get another insight into the elemental forces. Chapter 2, verse 15. Now, when we look at what Jesus does on the cross, rightly, we understand the foreground personal human thing, that Jesus died on the cross for you, that he gave his life, so that you may have life eternal, that you may not be subject to sin and death. And so we understand that, that how that plays out in the personal, in the foreground. We also understand how that plays out in the background with God. We understand that God gives his son. We understand that God triumphs over death. We understand that God is vindicated, that this is his salvation plan. But what does it mean for this middle space? What does it mean for the elemental forces? Rarely is this ever spoken of or preached. But Colossians 2.15 tells us, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. On the cross, Jesus dies for your sins. On the cross, God is vindicated and the world sees his king. But he also disarms these things which enslave us. He takes their power away. And just listen to the language that he uses. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Now, if you, you know, say to your friend, hey, how did your tennis match go on Thursday night? Oh, one. Okay, that sounds good. How did, you th- how did your tennis match go on Thursday night? I made a public spectacle of them <laughs> and I disarmed them of any tennis ability that they ever had. <laughs> You're going to like, is this on video? I need to see this. <laughs> this is not just I either beat them. This is a hum- other, other current translations use the word humiliation. Right, this isn't just beating, this is utterly humiliated and showed them up for what they are. They're acting like gods. You don't have the power to be gods. You actually have been disarmed. So what this does then is it shows us that these elements are still in play, but they've been disarmed by the cross. The final battle has, not the final battle, but this, this, this crucial battle has occurred. They've been defeated on the cross So how do they then operate in the world now? Right. So we go up and we go to verse 8. We get an insight into how they operate. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Christ's truth 
What can the elemental forces do? Use hollow and deceptive, deceptive tricking philosophy based on human tradition. How we tend to think about spiritual war is shaped by our understanding of earthly war. And the defining thing in our imaginations is really the Second World War. Your country is involved in it, we fought alongside you. And how we understand Second World War was these two great forces, the Axis and the Allied forces, battling each other in gigantic sea battles, land battles, air battles, all across the world. Two forces evenly matched. At different parts of the war, it looked like one side would win and then the other side. That's how we tend to think about war, an evenly matched battle between two equally matched enemies. But it's not like that in spiritual war. Sometimes we talk about it in that way, but it's actually not biblical. The elemental forces don't match God. They don't have the capacity to match God. They've been disarmed and they've actually been defeated and they've been made a public spectacle of, so they can only engage in a kind of war which is actually a disinformation campaign. Now, there's one dominant military in the world, Australia, no, not really, <laughs> the United States. And since the United States has been the dominant force in the world since 1989 when the Soviet Union fell, we've been in what's called a unipolar world. We're about to move back into a bipolar world with the rise of China. Within 10 years, we'll double the GDP of the United States. And that will have tremendous military implications. That's another lecture series. Back to what I'm talking about. <laughs> At this point, what has happened is a number of countries realizing that America is the dominant superpower in the world, have created other concepts of war. Some of them go back, some of them have contemporary uh, expressions, but the, the war that is being used by other countries is called either asymmetrical warfare or dirty war. Asymmetrical warfare is you don't go straight onwards. You don't meet the enemy on the battlefield. You use irregular troops. You ferment insurrections in the opposite country. You get various minorities in that country to rebel. You flood with disinformation. You hack, you take over media. You insert false narratives into that culture. This is dirty war. It is not just meeting with tanks, it is changing minds. Now, there's a book called War in 140 Characters about the effect of Twitter on war by, I think his name's David, uh, Michael Patriarchios, and he says that war is no longer what we thought it was, which is, I'm going to take your territory. Like, no one's going to come and take America's territory. Red Dawn, it's a fantasy. <laughs> but what he said now is, war's not about taking territory, it's about controlling the narrative. Another book called Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media by Peter W. Singer not, Singer, not Peter Singer, the Australian ethicist, but Peter W. Singer, he says that even if you control the territory now, you still have to control the narrative because if you don't control the narrative, you lose the territory. Okay, so how this is playing out is that people around the world have realized that one of the most effective ways that they can wage war is not just their air force, not just their, their, their army, not just their navy. Around the world, people are building troll farms. 
You've heard about Russia and their troll farms. This week we heard about Saudi Arabia and their troll farms. People are realizing that through social media, you can create disinformation warfare in other countries, fermenting tremendous confusion and social unrest. And they now have bots, and this is literally just level one. We're going to go to level 10 in the next three years. But they now have bots which can look I read about this, where they can send you messages of disinformation. First of all, they work out what you're afraid of. Are you afraid about your job going? Maybe you've typed into Google, what if I lose my job? They will send you a message, migrants are coming to take your job. Illegal immigrants are coming to take your job. They will tailor a message for you, and not only that, they know the time of day when you are most emotionally susceptible to a fake news story where you'll be open because that's when, according to the emotional cartography that they've created of your social media habits, when that message of fear will strike home the most powerfully. 11.10 at night, that's when you, how do I deal with anxiety, into Google. So we have this now, and this is just level one, it's going to go to level 10, that's another lecture series I'll come back and do. Um, but the elemental forces don't have a military which is going to come and take your territory because Christ has defeated them, but they are waging a disinformation warfare campaign against you, and their power is when you don't notice them, and they can take you captive through their deceptive philosophy. Information warfare. So, I could talk about so many things about this, but I want to narrow in on one particular thing that I think is really prescient for us here. And I want to narrow it down into Portland. The context in which this church exists, the context in which you live, and the context in which God has called you to be ambassadors of His presence. As I've visited Portland over the last few years, I've noticed some similarities with my hometown. I've grown up in Melbourne. I've been not just in Melbourne my whole life, I've been in the same part of Melbourne's east my whole life. You can go to a hill near my house and you can look, and that's my life is literally been in that sort of two miles, 95% of it. I'm born and bred in my neighborhood. And I love Melbourne, I love her for all of her quirks, but I love her for her faults. I remember Melbourne when I was a kid, when it wasn't cool. I, because of my family, know working class Melbourne. I love Greek Melbourne. As a kid, my parents were involved in overseas ministry and I would go and spend time in Richmond amongst Vietnamese Melburnians. When I worked for the Salvation Army for 10 years downtown, I got to see homeless Melbourne. I got to see heroin addict Melbourne. I have seen this city change and grow. And I've seen God love her and God have this heart. As I've studied my city, which everyone says is, oh, it's Australia's sort of most post-Christian city and it's the most secular, hardest soil to do ministry in. God in the last few years has opened to my eyes to the ways in which God actually moved, particularly in 1901, when a move of God happened in my city. The streets I remember before they were cool. But about 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, this change began to happen. 
Melbourne's always been into coffee since the 19th century. Italians, we had a large-scale Italian migration in the 1950s, and they brought espresso machines, which we're eternally grateful for. Um, <laughs> and so we've always had this coffee culture, but all of a sudden, it went to another level. When I would speak in New Zealand or other cities in Australia, there would be this line of people. They're almost always graphic designers or in a band, and they were moving to Melbourne. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why? It's just so cool. It's like, I remember when it wasn't cool. I remember in the 1980s when like Crocodile Dundee was like huge and like Australia was like Sydney Harbour and beaches. Melbourne's like cold and coffee shops and like a really ugly harbour. But all of a sudden, at some point, at the 2000s began, we became cool. And people started moving here. And so you have these interactions with people. I just love Melbourne. I love the coffee shops and I love the cool lanes and they've got these like cool bars that you don't even know are bars. But I remember when... I walked in those lanes before they were cool. I remember helping homeless people in those lanes. Now, this is not a whole, like, the real New Yorkers are the ones who've always lived their talk. What this is, is that something began to happen around 15 years ago, not just in your city but and mine, but across the world, where a fundamental social change began to occur, where a new class of people rose, who were primarily involved in image management. Well, it was no longer about building stuff as it was about building an identity and broadcasting it to the world. And some people began to change their personal identities and some cities began to buy into this. And so now when you watch my state governments or city councils advertising campaigns, it's totally bought into hipster Melbourne as it's public persona. But God doesn't see it like that. God sees every brick, every bit of land. He sees the cool people and he loves them, but he sees the totally uncool people. He sees the hipster, but he also sees the old lady who's been living in the working class suburb for the last 80 years. And God sees the place, and he loved it when it was a city. He loved it when the Chinese migrants came during the gold rush 100 years ago. He loved it when people came and convicts who were sent to Australia from Britain to be thrown away as human garbage. He loved it when the Aboriginal people of Australia walked through those areas when it wasn't even a city. And he loved that land when there wasn't even humans there because he created it and it was good. And he loves this city before it was Portland of coffee shops and microbreweries and and all kinds of things. I was going to say Portlandia, but that, that's just, someone should just tweet that. God loved Portland before it was Portlandia. Um, this sense that he's loved this place and it's dear to his heart. And so therefore, almost what's happened with your city and mine, it's like someone's come along and done this radical makeover. But it's like a makeover which doesn't really fit because it's actually not indicative of who those real cities are. And so we can come to a city like this, particularly if you've moved it, and you can invest in it because you actually think it's going to deliver you something. You actually think it's going to deliver you an identity and a persona, and it can't. That is an empty and deceptive philosophy based on human traditions and the elementary forces. So what the elementary forces wants to do is take a city like Melbourne or Portland and wants to take people captive and what it's placed over both your and my cities is a stronghold based on incredible radical individualism that takes both left and right 
the worst of left and right and takes the right, which creates this mutant capitalism which has gone beyond its bounds, where basically people just move and everyone has no stability and it uproots working class communities and it comes in and takes that and then the left comes in and undermines any tradition or authority or understanding that's gone before and it all ends up in the same place. Rootless individuals who must define themselves by their external identity, who submit to no authority but the self, but then paradoxically turn into a creatures of herd-like behavior. And so the people in my city look like yours. We're all individuals and a bit indie and alternative, but everyone drinks the same coffee. Everyone listens to the same music. Everyone looks the same. It's not who we are. It's not God's destiny. It's an empty and hollow philosophy. And we can point, it's not even about the coffee, it's not about the clothes, it's not about the music. None of that is wrong in of themselves. I like Portland. Three things I love outside of ministry and my family are books, soccer, and coffee. So, like, <laughs> I like it here. I like Melbourne. It's not about those things. What it is about is that on top of that is this, like, walk around the city, what do you notice? As an outsider, it is very young. There's little sense of family here. It doesn't go beyond the generations. Secondly, really interesting, similar to parts of Melbourne. Melbourne's a super multicultural city when you get out of the inner cool parts, where it actually preaches diversity till it's blue in the face, yet actually doesn't look diverse. How does that, how does that happen? Now, we could blame people and I could pick on it, I could do my whole sociological thing. I don't want to do that. Elemental forces, people, are actually at play. And so we have this identity where people are stepping into this radical individualism. Now, if you're the elemental forces and you're in rebellion against God, who is your enemy? Your enemy is actually the remnant people of God who are living out the kingdom of God. And you can't attack that with your tank battalions front on. How are you going to attack it? You're going to attack the remnant people of God called out to live the kingdom of God with a disinformation campaign. Church is built on commitment. Church is built on, I am here. I submit to you, Jesus. No other authority. I am death to self now because your cross has given it all. I follow you. So it's going to say to people, you can be a Christian and you can have all that cool Christian stuff. Man, community, I love Bridgetown's community. It's great. Like, I went to the service and afterwards, like, they had people going to tilt burgers and I could lead me there. This is going to be the community that I'm looking for because I live in a city which creates isolation whilst promising community. So cool, I get that. I get a sense of meaning in the world. I get a sense of faith. My parents back home were praying that I go to a church when I moved to Portland, so that's good. And I've got that foot here, but then what the elemental forces are gonna say is, you can have a foot over here. Autonomy. Okay, this is quite, I'm afraid I'm gonna fall. Autonomy. Fear of commitment. I want to be part of that community group, but I'm going to come when I want. But they better be there when I'm wanted. I love that stuff on kingdom. I love that stuff on community. Have you heard about the justice project they're doing? Christian sexual ethic. The most flaming, to use an Australian term, countercultural, undermining value that undermines the capitalistic, hedonistic, Western supremacist 
view of sexuality, I want to attack that. I don't want people to think that they don't have to follow the Christian ethic and they can choose what they want here and have it in both camps. So I don't want people to go out and become like Satanists. I want them to be in the church, but an absolute drag because they won't commit to anything. And when you have a foot in both camps after a while, you're going to tear your groin. So, churches across the Western world, this is the biggest challenge. This is the biggest challenge. It's not that people are placating the front of their churches, protesting against them. It's actually that the people called to be the remnant are being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy. That people are being hit by the spiritual algorithmic bots of the elementary forces with fake news, that they can have faith and have a foot in both camps. So I just want to give you a handful of things that what this means, that I felt God giving me this afternoon as I prayed for your city. The first one is the elementary forces are actually doing their campaign of of disinformation, what they want to trick you is that you're in peacetime. That this is not a spiritual war. To drink the coffee, enjoy the sunshine, and wonder where you're going to have brunch next. To look at the world as what you can accumulate in experiences. To look at the world through the eyes of a civilian, not as... Paul instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 to not get entangled in civilian affairs. The enemy wants people to think that they're not soldiers for Christ's kingdom. You're civilians. Caught up in civilian affairs. We live in a world now today where people can talk about the most inane thing for hours on end. Shades of that paint scheme. The elements of that coffee. And again, none of that's wrong, but when that is everything, then we have a problem. We need to stop thinking like civilians and realize they were soldiers. Soldiers are actually under orders. Soldiers don't have the authority to choose what they want to do when they want to do it. I literally two days ago saw a video of Prince Harry when he was in the military being interviewed when he was serving, I think, in Afghanistan as a helicopter pilot. And there was some sort of paparazzi-type celeb mag. We're interviewing him about being the prince, and he's sitting there in his fatigues, and he's interviewing with his helicopter behind, and he's talking, and all of a sudden this alarm goes off, and you see behind him his guys running, and he just rips off his mic and just runs and puts on his jacket. Why? Because even the prince when he is a soldier, is under orders. You are princes and princesses in God's kingdom, but you're under orders. So therefore, you have to stop thinking like civilians and think like soldiers. You're in a war. Number two, the disinformation bots of the elemental forces will want you to not realize who you really are. Maybe you don't know who you really are. Maybe you're looking left and right to get a sense of identity, looking at flesh and blood. Maybe you actually need to look vertically. Maybe you need to actually understand that your truest identity is as a child of God, created in His image, 
given dominion to be a steward in the world, to be a carrier of his presence, and God, God who created the humpback whale, the Andes in the Andromeda system, is asking to partner with you. And you think your life is just like, oh, I'm here, I've got my Mac, oh, what am I going to do today? No, you're this incredible peg in God's plan for what he wants to do in the universe, that he is choosing to bring heaven and earth together, and he's asking you to be in on that. You don't know who you are. Discover who you are in God. The best way you can serve Portland is to disobey Portland's rules. Three, you don't really know your city. We can be fooled in thinking our city is that coffee spot, that brunch spot, the cool places. There is a whole different bunch of things happening in this city. We need to actually meet our cities for the first time through God's eyes. This morning, I was praying, and, and I didn't sleep much because there was a lot of spiritual warfare around this sermon. And I didn't get to sleep until about four. I had a couple of hours sleep, and I just got, God, show me this city. Show me what you want to speak in. I got some coffee. I was sitting at the coffee shop. See, I go there. It's okay. And <laughs> coffee shops are not bad. Don't take that from this. And there was a homeless guy just outside the coffee shop. There's a young woman sitting to my right, and very quietly, with no fanfare, I didn't even barely notice she had managed to pull this off until she just handed him a breakfast. And I was like, that's your city. That's who you want people to be in this city. No big fuss, no like, here's my campaign. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Here's breakfast. The thing that got me though is the young woman went off the street and the homeless man took the food crossed himself and prayed. I thought, that's also your city. A city which is filled with people who are literally homeless and people who are spiritually homeless. And you're called to actually be salt and light in this place. The disinformation bots don't want you to actually know your city. Fourth, you don't know what time it is. The information bots, don't you know what time it is? They want you to live in the moment, not worry about the future, not realize the spiritual heritage that you've got that's brought you to this point, the story that God has been writing over your life. You don't realize that you live in the time between Jesus' death and his return, and this is the time of the church, this is the time of the spirit, this is the time where he's moving history towards his ends. Human calendars, the Gregorian calendar, the Chinese calendar, the Arabic calendar, none of them really count. What actually counts is God's calendar, and you are here for a time as this. And this is not about killing time, this is about investing in time with a kingdom mindset. So you're not just here, I'm here in Portland for two years, I just see what happens, like you're here. Jesus, what do you want me to do today? God, I give you the next week. Why have you got me here? You might be a lifelong Portlandia, you, Portlander, Portlander, Mel, I'm a Melburnian. Um, you, you might be here your whole life, you might be here for two years, but what does God want you to deposit in this time? Stop thinking on earthly metrics, think spiritual time. Number five, there's only two more, in case you're wondering if there's 30. You will be stopped by the spiritual bots of the elemental forces from hearing the song that God is singing of love over the city. You only get to hear it when you stop. God, what are you saying? You love the city. You're calling her to be her true self. You're calling this city to be a place of justice, a place of home, 
a place that goes beyond just a group of young adults living in the moment, a place of reconciliation, a place that's multicultural. You're calling this place to be an example and an embassy of God in this time and place in a world that is becoming more divided. And you get to participate in that when we listen. But first, we've got to listen to the song that's being sung over the city. Lastly, number six. The bots of the enemy will want to trick you that your worship is not powerful. When we come here, we're not just doing church. You're not just participating in a bunch of religious acts. You are singing a new reality over the city. When you come, what Adam and Eve were called to do and failed to do, but then Christ has enabled us to do, is actually to allow the whole of our lives to be worshipped, as Romans 12:1 tells us. You're called to sing here, and when you sing, you're putting the world in its right order. When humans give honor to God and praise and thank Him and say, you are above all, you actually play this role because worship is warfare. When you worship here and sing, this is literally like the Air Force providing air support for the battle that's happening on the ground in the spiritual realm. So when you're singing, this is not just a thing about, oh, that felt good, or I'm not feeling it today, I've got a bit of indigestion. You are in battle. You are singing. You are engaged. You are participating in God's plans for redemption for this city. And it's not just about singing. It's actually when you're at work and you do that for the glory of God, when you live lives where you bring people into community and see people as other human beings, seeing them in creating the image of God, that's worship. When you actually steward your time and work Sabbath in God's rhythms, that's worship. When you actually act holy and pure in a city which worships unholiness and impurity as a virtue, that is some mad worship as warfare going on. Because God comes to a holy people. And it doesn't matter if up until 15 minutes ago, you were being not very holy. It doesn't matter where you've been, it's actually where you're going, and particularly it's really about who's taking you there. And Jesus has come to wash you whiter than my shirt, because I've got a bit of my lunch on it, but what God has done is come to actually wash you clean. So this is not about shame of what you've done up till now, it's where you're going to go from here on in. Because God in cities like yours and mine wants a holy people. And particularly, I'm just going to talk to you if you're under 30. This is one of his most insane disinformation campaigns. Is he wants to take you out through sexual impurity. So, I am. Don't worry. <laughs> so, this is so crucial because... When we are compromised in this way, again, this is not about shame, but he wants to take Christians out by compromising them in this way because it's the deepest sense of our desires and our hearts. He wants us worshiping with one hand but actually connected with soul ties to something else. So God is actually calling people now to walk in purity and that's just going to be some insane warfare through doing that. And people are going to look at you and think you're weird, but who gives a stuff, as we say in Australia? So lastly, I have a particular word for this 7 p.m. service. Martin Thornton was this Anglican high church theologian who wrote this book in 1949, I think it was, and he said the church is divided into three groups. 
He said, it's like a sports stadium. He said, group number one is the people outside of the church. They're like the people outside of the stadium who don't even know the game is going on. I think the Portland Timbers played today and there's people walking around with, with their gear on and there's other people like, is there a game on? I didn't even realize. Okay, they're the people outside the church. The people in the shirts and the scarves, they're the spectators. They're watching the game. They're invested in the team. Maybe they're even chanting. Maybe they're just sitting back going, gee, they're playing terrible today. What is the coach doing? Sometimes they cheer, sometimes they critique. They're the nominal Christians. Consumers of religious goods and services. They seem part of the team. And then he said there's the last group, and this is the group who God always uses in any moment, in any church, no matter how big or small, in any culture, in any time. That's the remnant. The remnant are the ones on the field flying into tackles, taking tackles, throwing everything, leaving nothing behind. They're the ones who score the goals, who do what the coach says. They're the ones who bleed, get injuries. They're the ones in the fray of the battle. Something is happening in the Western world at the moment. Cultural Christianity, spectatorship is burning up. Good, good. Too many spectators. We need people on the field and in play. So I believe in America, God is actually giving over cultural Christianity as an elemental force. And he's calling out vital and real remnant Christianity because he can work with that base because those people are submitted. So he might seem that Christianity is dropping off and you might read statistics like church attendance has dropped, there's all these nuns around now, as in N-O-N-E-S, not Catholic nuns. Don't give up heart because it doesn't matter. What matters is if there's a remnant and when those cultural Christians drop off, the remnant gets hardened like in a fire. With pressure, diamonds are created and God's actually creating a remnant at this time. So for the seven, you are, I've got two words. First of all, the first word is you're a rudder. You're small, but you move a mighty ship. There's something about this service, and I've preached here a number of times now, and it's not to say anything about the other services. I had little sweet nothings to say to each of them. No, not really. That, <laughs> that what this service is, though, this is a rudder, and the contending that happens here drives this church. And so the second imagery I have is a furnace. Pete Gregg says that Sometimes the church is like a train and you've got the people sitting in their dining car and they're having nice wines and, no, oh, it's lovely, look at that dear, and watching the countryside go by. Other people in their cars having the news, I'm imagining a 1940s train here, by the way. Um, they look in the newspapers, and, oh, it's lovely, you take a photo. And then there are the guys in the steam engine and they're just hauling coal into that engine and they're hauling coal and they're sweating and they've got dirty t-shirts. You are in the furnace. You're in the front of the carriage and there needs to be more of you throwing coal on that fire because God actually wants to take this train somewhere in Portland. Be the furnace, 7 p.m. Be in the engine throwing coal on the fire. Amen. That's the end. Thank you. <laughs> 